All right, we've been looking at prayers in spiritual warfare. Last week we looked at the prayers of Jesus in the garden and Paul on the ship. We saw that praying in battle does not always involve short prayers. There may be, there may need to be, uh, well, the things we need to accomplish in prayers is first off, strengthening ourselves. Secondly, determine God's plan, understand. Third, understand what to ask for. Fourth, hear a rhema word. And fifth, see the direction to go. That's what we saw in those things that Paul and Jesus were doing in prayers before a spiritual battle was to take place. Ephesians 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword, or actually, and receive the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Now, we know we ended last time with the question, how do you know that you are in a spiritual battle and not just a difficult time? So, we'll take a little bit of time with this, but uh, I spent a lot of time on it, actually over the last couple of days, and then realized if we dip into the difficult time, we will be leaving the spiritual battle. And so I figured we better finish off the spiritual battle first before we go over to the difficult time. So we'll at least uh, get into it and show the differences of it, and we'll look at some examples of it in the next time we are together. But I wrote this in your outline for you so that you would have it. Spiritual warfare would be distinguished by our going up against spiritual forces, throwing thoughts, people, or natural things at us to keep us bound, defeated, distracted, or prevented from our God-given kingdom purpose. That would be spiritual warfare. There are spiritual forces that are involved, spiritual forces that are at work. The uh, difficult times will be recognized by a lack of spiritual forces and the dominant cause being, and I wrote four things down here, I'm sorry, five things down, for the dominant cause that you'll see as a difference here. First off, difficult times will be recognized by our own bad choices. That would be a difference. That's, that our own bad choices isn't the only cause. That's just one of the things. You can make a bad choice and encounter just, uh, bad times or difficult times. The second one is self-appointed kingdom roles and purposes. Self-appointed kingdom roles and purposes. There are people in the Bible who assumed certain roles that were not God-given, but they took them on themselves. And they had difficult times. There was no spiritual warfare involved. There were no spiritual forces arrayed against them. Their difficult time came because they decided to be self-appointed priests, self-appointed kings, self-appointed prophets, different things like that. In the Old Testament and New Testament, you find other areas and other places that they were in. Modern day, we find people who decide, I'm going to take on this role God has not called them to, and they will have difficult times that come in. There's not, they'll blame it on spiritual forces, but it's not. It's because they appointed themselves to something that they were not called to. Third was disobedience to the commands of the Word. There's times we've just been disobedient to the commands of the Word, and we start blaming the devil for the hard times that's coming our way. No, you just disobeyed God. Uh, Saul just decided to disobey God. There's no spiritual forces that he was facing. There may have been spiritual forces trying to deceive him, but the only reason he got into problems is because he decided to disobey God. And we have difficult choices. There are many times Christians today, they just decide, I'm going to do this my way. I'm not going to follow the way of the Bible. I'm not going to follow the wisdom that the Word of God gives us. And they encounter difficult times. They'll blame it on spiritual warfare. Here's the fourth one, mistake, mistakes born of spiritual immaturity. Sometimes we just try and do things spiritually that we haven't, haven't grown to that level of. We think we have, and we try to, but we're just not quite to that spot just yet. And so mistakes born of spiritual immaturity. 
children encounter difficult times because of their immaturity level. And they do things that when they grow up, you realize, oh, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't say that. You shouldn't act that way. And we learn that as we grow up, and then we avoid some of those difficult times. And the last one I came up with, ignorance and even weaknesses that come as a result of the fall of Adam. There are some things that come because of weaknesses we encounter in our nature because of the fall, but also there's some ignorances of some things that come as a result of the fall, and we get into trouble because we're ignorant of it. The Bible is filled with people doing things of ignorance and encountering difficult times because of the fall of Adam. They didn't overcome any of those things. They were ignorant of some some stuff, and you could grow past that, but they didn't decide to do that. So those are five things that will help us to understand that. Uh, I don't think I left this in your outline, how to pull out a lot, but these keep us from enjoying life, make it unnaturally difficult, or even discourage us from desiring to continue. But do not directly engage our God-assigned purpose for the kingdom. Spiritual warfare causes us to be known and engaged by the enemy. Spiritual warfare causes us to be known and engaged by the enemy. Jesus was known by the enemy that he was engaged in spiritual warfare. John the Baptist was known by the enemy. He was engaged in spiritual warfare. Paul was engaged in spiritual warfare and was known by the enemy. We know that there are some people that decided to go out and to cast out demons in the name of Jesus whom Paul preached. And remember what the demon spirit said to the one group? <laughs> Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? <laughs> I don't even know who you are. <laughs> because they had not engaged in spiritual warfare. They're just engaging things in the flesh level. And that won't get you to be known by the enemy. Now, difficult times engages our pride when we speak of it as, as attention by the enemy because of the kingdom, but kingdom business is not what brought about the difficulties. There's a lot of times that we are engaged in, or I'm sorry, people are engaged, Christians are engaged in difficult times. They're battling difficult times in their life, but they will say things about being involved in spiritual warfare. They will call their difficult times spiritual warfare because that engages their pride. I feel better about engaging this difficult time if people believe that I am encountering spiritual warfare, then if I am encountering something that is just bringing on a difficult time. People sometimes also call difficult times spiritual warfare because of the assumption in many believers' minds that bad times are the result of sin or wrongdoing. That is still an assumption that people carry, even though it was addressed. We saw in the last couple of weeks on Sunday some of the places where this was addressed. But still, many Christians have this assumption that if I encounter bad times, that they're a result of sin. Now, in the five things that I gave you, not all those are a result of sin. In order to avoid embarrassment, they talk about how the devil has targeted them because they must be doing something right to draw his attention. There'll be a lot of people surprised when they get to heaven and find out that the devil didn't even know their name because they're not involved in spiritual warfare. So with that, we're going to leave the difficult time to go until next week. But that'll at least give you some something. But I, I pulled out some really interesting examples on, on this that will show you the difference between difficult times and spiritual warfare, examples from, from the Bible. But um, here, let's take a look at 2 Kings chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19. 2 Kings 19 beginning at verse 14. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Now this is a letter that came from Sennacherib as the king of Assyria had deployed the army of the Assyrians into the southern kingdom of Judah after they conquered the northern tribes. Now they conquered the northern tribe because God had sent them as a hand of judgment. And they basically were sent of God to, to do that. Or at least God, uh, God allowed them. God uh, had them come on out because he told them, you're going to be judged. You're going to be removed from this land because of your disobedience, because of your idolatry. And so they were the ones that, that came on in. 
Now, Assyria is not submitted to God at all. They're submitted to themselves and they're submitted to their own idols and their own gods that they do. Uh, but God still allowed them to come in and to do this because of the disobedience of his people. And because he warned them with the prophets and they didn't listen to the prophets and they went on their, their own way. But here we see the king of Assyria has decided, well, I've gone over here and taken care of this one. So I'm going to go on down over here and take care of the southern part as well and, and take them. But God didn't commission them. God didn't open the door for them to, uh, to go out there and do that. They were not a hand of judgment against Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had brought the nation back into doing some things and following after God. And we know that if we went into the chapters prior to this. So when, you have, when you're a king like Hezekiah and you take a nation who was in idolatry and turn them into a nation that's following after God, you can imagine that would spark some spiritual warfare. And the, the kingdom of darkness that had embraced the southern kingdom and had them following after idols and the high places and all the other things that they would get into, and Hezekiah is, is taking them out of that, now, not to the degree that some of the other ones had, but to a great degree. And God certainly was on his, his side and, and helping him in the things he was accomplishing. And now you've got this king of Assyria coming on down and, and messing with them. So verse 15, then Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. So we can see that they're engaged in spiritual warfare, that the enemy wants to come down and wipe them out. Uh, surely the enemy just likes to kill people. He likes people dead before they become saved. He doesn't want them to have the opportunity to get saved. Get saved. But even more so, he's after the people of God. He wants them destroyed. And here, Israel, he wants them wiped out. He knows that the seed that is promised is coming through Israel. So if he can wipe out Israel, then he can block the seed from coming. So that's part of his operation. So Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste their nations, or their nations and their land. They have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. Now we're looking at three different aspects of spiritual warfare that was involved and prayers that were given. The three we have here, we have more detail on the prayers that were given than the two we looked at last week. The ones we looked at last week, we had a little bit of what Jesus prayed over the course of the hour that he was praying. And the second hour, he prayed similar to the first hour. And however long the third time he went that he, he went to pray, he prayed along the same similar lines, but we only have a, a couple of the things that surmised that at that time. Paul, we don't have the prayer at all. We just have the answer. And so we deduce from the answer what the prayer was. So that's how we, we looked at that. But here, in these cases, we have some idea of what was actually prayed because the prayer is recorded. And so we want to take a look at the, the prayer that's here. The, uh, and break it down. And what I noticed here was that there are four aspects to each of these prayers. And so if you see something repeated, it took me a little while to look at them, look at all, all, four, all three of them, and break them down and to see the parts that were there. But when I, uh, I was able to see this, um, it was there in all of them. So if it's there in all of them, we would do good to emulate it. We would do good to, to copy this in our prayers. None of them are real long. But they all included these four aspects. So we're going to take a look at these. Uh, the first aspect of it is it doesn't pick up doubt or fear from contrary words. These prayers, one of the aspects of these prayers is they don't pick up doubt or fear from the contrary words. Sometimes people's contrary words 
can get us to pick up doubts and fears. The, um, you remember when Elijah heard the words of the queen, his prayers picked up some doubt and some fear that was, was involved, that was going on in him. And you'll see that in certainly other places, but that's, that's one of them. When we pick up contrary words from doctors, that can instill in us doubt and fear, and that can come out in our prayers. When we encounter contrary words from our employer, or from people who run our government, or from uh, people in our family, or from people that are close to us, when we encounter these contrary words, then we can have prayers that pick up doubt and fear. But in these examples, and here in this one, Hezekiah does not. He has words that come from Sennacherib written out, and these are words that are condemning. These are words of declaring that you are going to die, that you were going to come in and we're going to destroy you, just like we did to all these others. Don't think that your God is going to be any better. He's not. But they don't pick up, he doesn't pick up doubt and fear. When he's praying, you don't see any doubt, you don't see any fear in him. Here's the second one. Acknowledges that God's greatness continues. In what he prays here, he doesn't, he doesn't back off on how great God is. Let's look at the prayer again. O Lord God of Israel, verse 15. The one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. See, he's declaring the greatness of his God. doesn't matter what the enemy has said, I know that you are great. And so he's not letting any of that, that go. Now the first one, doubt and fear, you can just read the whole prayer and you see there is no doubt and there is no fear in his prayer. But here he acknowledges the greatness of God. That God's greatness continues. Just because someone has come against God doesn't mean that God still isn't great. Sometimes Christians see things that a government does against the church, see things that a government does against the Word of God uh, or against uh, uh, people who want to walk the line of faith. And they feel like, or they, they'll say prayers in such a way that almost sounds like the government is greater than God. Government is not greater than God. You go back to people like Daniel. You go back to people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They knew their God was greater than the government. They knew their God was greater than the fiery furnace. Abraham knew his God was greater than five kings. And so the, the list goes on. But the enemy wants you to think that he is greater. Because he believed for a while that he was greater, and that's why he rebelled. But Hezekiah acknowledges that God's greatness continues. Here's the next one. Doesn't point out their own goodness or that they deserve deliverance. Hezekiah does not point out his or their own goodness or that they deserve deliverance. You don't one time hear him say in that prayer, but look at all the good things we've done, God. Look at, <clears throat> look at all the idols we've destroyed. Look at what we've done with the house of God in restoring worship. <clears throat> Look at what we've done in restoring the teaching, the right teaching of the Word of God. He doesn't do all that. He doesn't list these things as, this is why you should come through, because look at what we've done. Now, many Christians, when they are engaging prayer before they go into some kind of warfare or even difficult times, they want to cite what they have done. But look at what I have done in church. Look what I have done to witness at my job. Look what I have done to witness when I go into the grocery store or the Walmart. Look what I have done. We'll, we'll list these things that we have done. As if that should get us some points. That is missing in Hezekiah's prayer. Now he could have. I mean, there's a. you go back in the chapters before, you're going to see a lot of things that Hezekiah did to go against the grain and to turn the nation around. And the, the nation did respond and did go after God. Maybe not as a whole, but certainly as a, uh, a majority, they seem to go after God. But he doesn't point out their own goodness or that they deserve deliverance. He asks 
God to deliver for his name's sake and as a testimony to all the nations. So he looks for this thing from God's standpoint, from God's viewpoint. God, this is to your benefit because the nations are going to say, you couldn't deliver us. The nations are going to say they got rid of all the idols, served God, and that God couldn't deliver them. Your name's on the line. And I know you don't like your name (laughs) being shown as weak. So, for your name's sake, and as a testimony to all the nations around, that's what he used as the basis. And Moses did this too when he was interceding for Israel. He used the same thing. The nations around are going to say that you weren't able to do it, so you wiped them out. So he learned from what Moses like done, I'd assume. Uh, here's the, the next thing. God's people and nation were the target of the enemy. So when you're looking at this as spiritual warfare, here's why it was spiritual warfare. Because God's people and God's nation were the target of the enemy. So that's why we know that this is a prayer we can look at. And we gave, again, four things. Doesn't pick up doubt or fear from contrary words. Acknowledges that God's greatness continues. Doesn't point out their own goodness or that they deserve deliverance. And ask God to deliver for His name's sake and as a testimony to all the nations. Now, I'm not saying that these are the only four aspects that you need to have. I'm saying that these are the four aspects that were involved here with Hezekiah. And that a lot of Christians today come up short in these four things. That very often we are asking God to do things for us, whether it be difficult times or spiritual warfare, on the basis of our own goodness. On the basis of what we deserve. And not on God's name. We don't acknowledge the greatness of our God. In fact, we're kind of crying. I thought you were greater. I thought you were stronger. Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? We don't pick, pick up doubt and fear, but many Christians today, they're picking up doubt and fear, and they got doubt and fear all through their prayers. Now here, let's take a look at the second one. <clears throat> this is in Acts chapter 4, verse 23 through 31. The disciples had just been uh, held, arrested, because they were preaching in the name of Jesus and they got somebody healed. It caused a stir and the Pharisees and the folks there didn't want this stir to go all over nationwide. They were concerned that people would get excited about the name of Jesus whom they just crucified to get out of the way. And here these guys are going out preaching in the name of Jesus and doing some of the same works that Jesus had done and they need to squash this. So they come after them because of this great miracle that was done. So they threatened them, and they did everything. Of course, we know the great line that Peter had. Should we obey you or obey God? Well, we think we're going to obey God. So they didn't say, well, all right, we'll do what you say, and then go out and do something different. They just never agreed to do what they said to do. So all they could do was they threatened them further, and then they released them, hoping that those threats would would accomplish what they wanted to do. Verse 23, and being let go, They went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Well, what's he doing? Acknowledging that God's greatness continues. They're not greater than our God. They may make threats. But they're not greater than our God. Our God is still greater. Verse 25, Who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Well, he's saying here that no matter what these people say, no matter what they threaten, they are vain things. David even knew this. Nations rage, people plot vain things, but God, He made heaven and earth and the sea And all that is in them. He's greater than these nations. And he's greater than these people who plot vain things. Verse 26. The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord. And against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus. Whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate. With the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together. 
to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now look, Lord, on their threats and grant to your servants with all, that with all boldness they may speak your word. So these people had come against Jesus and they were successful in coming against Jesus and that they crucified him. But of course, this is all part of the plan of God. They didn't do it because they were greater than God. It happened because God is greater. And the plan that God had came about. Verse 29 again. Now look on their threats. Now you, Lord, look on their threats. Their threats are small in comparison to you. And grant to your servants that we may be protected. No, they didn't say that, did they? Mm -mm. That we won't be arrested anymore. They didn't pray that. That we will be delivered. They didn't pray that. Now grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Not I, not even just we, but all the servants of God. They're praying for the boldness for all those servants who would go out and speak in the name of Jesus. They all would be granted this boldness. By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So the healings, the miracles that were going on was getting them the wrong kind of attention. They were getting beat, whipped, thrown in jail, threatened. They didn't say, we don't want to do this anymore. They said, no, no, no. Let us go out and preach and speak the word in all boldness. And let these miracles, let these things continue on. And they even pray, we've been bold, but we need to be bolder. So you help us to be bolder yet, put that in us, that we may speak your word. Not our word, that we may speak your word, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Not through our name. They're not trying to do things to, to make their name great. They're trying to do things to make the name of the Lord great. And so we see these things again. They acknowledge that God's greatness continues. They don't pick up doubt or fear from the contrary words. You know they could have. Well, God, I love serving you, but boy, if I'm going to keep facing this stuff, I'm just going to be serving you in my basement. Just having quiet worship times. They don't point out their own goodness. They don't say how well they have been doing what Jesus said to do. They don't say that they deserve to be delivered. They ask for God to deliver, to continue to work the miracles, I guess I should say, not really deliver, but to continue to work the miracles and continue to do the things through them for His testimony. And so that was their prayer. Now we know what they faced there was spiritual warfare. I guess I put a one blank here for you, but notice that their prayer has the same four aspects as Hezekiah's prayer, except the last one isn't for deliverance, but for demonstration of God's power. And that is for that the name of the Lord would be, would go. Now here, we know that this was spiritual warfare because they were preaching, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the preaching in the name of Jesus was, tar was target of the enemy. The teaching in the name of Jesus, was the target of the enemy. This is what the enemy came against. They didn't care that you taught the Word as far as the Old Testament and the law and things like that. They just don't want you to preach this name Jesus. And that's when they threatened them, they commanded them not to teach in the name of Jesus anymore. No more miracles in the name of Jesus. No more teaching in the name of Jesus. You need to leave this stuff alone. So this was the target of the enemy. That's where the spiritual warfare comes in. We're not just looking at difficult times, though certainly the times are difficult. But there's spiritual warfare involved. There's something that they're trying to stop, and that thing that they're trying to stop is the preaching in the name of Jesus. That's very evident in the story. Now we've got one more to look at here. And then it's 1 Kings chapter 18. This is Elijah's, Elijah's prayer on Mount Carmel. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. This is his prayer. This is what he's praying on the mountain. 
We don't know what kind of things he prayed before that, but he's involved in the spiritual warfare on the mountain. And this is the prayer that, he's, that he says. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And so we see here in the same thing that He is alone on this mountain. He is by Himself. He's got all these prophets of Baal, all these prophets of Ashtoreth, all the people that have been worshipping the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and He's by Himself. I'm sure that they were taunting him in the beginning. The way that he taunted the, the, uh, the priest on the other side at the end. But in the beginning, they're probably taunting him. But he's not moved by this. He doesn't look at how he is outnumbered. So there's no doubt and fear that comes into his prayer. He acknowledges God's greatness continues. He's, he's letting them know in his prayer. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. I don't give you orders. You give me orders. You are God here in Israel. They may not be worshiping you, but you are still God. You are God in Israel. I'm your servant. I have all the things I have done. I've done it at your word. You're the one who told me to do it. You hear me, hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. So we see that he acknowledges the greatness, God's greatness. He doesn't point out his own goodness. He doesn't talk about, which he does later. I alone and left. That's for our later prayer. He's not praying that right now. None of that is infecting him. It did later as he's at the mountain. I have been very zealous for the Lord. All your prophets have been killed. I alone am left. Now they seek to take my life. You see, he switched. And now the doubt and the fear that came from the words that were contrary, they infected his prayer. But here on the mountain, they don't infect the prayer at all. All that stuff is, is kept away. Whatever threats he got, you don't hear about it in this prayer. He doesn't point out, bring down fire, show them that I'm your man. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He asks for God to demonstrate his power and to show them that he is God as a testimony to the nations of Israel and that also this would be spread to the people around them. Now, how much boldness went before this prayer? Well, just for the disciples... There's a lot of boldness involved in Elijah before this went on to even call this meeting to declare there will be no rain until I say so. That takes some boldness. And then to, to go and to hide out knowing that everyone is looking for you. And go hide out where God says. Just knowing, well, God says, go here. So that means I'm going to be hidden here. And... So he did all the things that God had said. That took a lot of boldness. And then when God says, go show yourself to Ahab, knowing that he was the number one wanted man in the country, and he just shows up. He had a lot of boldness before he ever got here. The disciples demonstrated a lot of boldness before they ever got to that prayer. Hezekiah demonstrated a lot of boldness before he ever got to this prayer. He's telling the people, don't speak. Don't say anything when the people come. He has been declaring, God is going to deliver us. And city by city was fallen. God is going to deliver us. The army surrounding us. God is going to deliver us. That takes some boldness to stand up there and to do this. But Hezekiah did it. For each of these situations, there was a lot of boldness that went on before the prayer. They weren't timid. We see the same four, same four aspects as the disciples' prayer here as in Elijah's prayer. So Hezekiah, the disciples, and Elijah all had these four aspects going on. Now, you remember in the Paul, 
with Paul and Jesus, there were sorrow and despair with them. Jesus had great sorrow. People observed it in him, and then he spoke about it. And we looked at some of the words that were used in that. And Paul, as Luke described the situations there, he said they despaired of life. But in these situations, certainly with Hezekiah, I think you could see there could be some despair there. He doesn't seem to let it affect him. He doesn't speak about it, but I'm sure he was, uh, that, that could have been knocking on his door. Here's, here's despair. Open up. Let me in. But it didn't seem that he did. Elijah, I can't see any despair trying to affect him at all. He just seems to, to ride above it. And the, the disciples, man, they feel honored that uh, they were targeted in this way. I don't see any despair in them at all. So we don't see that. That doesn't seem to be a necessary part. Sometimes sorrow and despair can become a part of the things that when we battle this. Uh, what, so whether it's present or whether it's not, that's not going to tell you whether you're in a difficult time, spiritual warfare, or anything like that. If it comes, it can be dealt with. But it doesn't have to be there. But even with the, uh, the two we looked at last week, we'll see the same thing, that there was no doubt or fear in the things that they seemed to be praying, just from the, the clues that we were able to take. We know with Jesus, He acknowledged the greatness of God. Not my will, but your will be done. He didn't point out His own life. Saul didn't point out, hey, you were telling me to do these things. We don't, we don't know that any of that was going on. But they point to the kingdom. This is what benefits the kingdom. God, if you want me to be uh, testimony in front of Caesar, I have to get there. So the angel says, you are getting there. I'm going to have you there. You see, his, his idea was what's needed for the kingdom, not what's needed for Paul. That's what he, he continued to focus on. Now, it's certainly not necessary to have, like we said, the sorrow and despair, but sometimes they can become a part. Now, in all these prayers, you will notice this. There is no begging, complaining, wondering, doubt, or uncertainty. You could probably keep that list going, but that's enough for right now. <laughs> There's no begging. Oh, God, please hear me on this. Oh, God. Elijah, he doesn't beg for the fire of God to come down. He just says, God, show yourself God. The other side was begging and pleading for their God to answer. He doesn't beg and plead. God, show yourself strong. Here it is. And there it goes. There's no complaining. There's no wondering. I mean, if you were Elijah, could you have complained? Well, for probably something at least around three years, he's got to be hid out in this shack with this woman and her son. Doing what? Hiding. Eating flour and oil. Cakes made of flour and oil for about three years. He could have been complaining about that. He could have brought that in. Now, God, I, I, uh, I endured all those years eating that cake. You, know, you need to show up here. There's no complaining from him. But Christians will a lot of times tie complaining in because they're trying to show their merit. Hey, we deserve to have this go on. Nope. Don't be doing it. So in all these prayers, there's no begging, complaining, wondering. God, I just don't understand. Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? I don't understand. Why does this have to happen? I've been doing so many things for you. Why does... There's no wondering. Paul doesn't sit up there on the boat and say, Oh God, why do... If you want me to get there, why do I have to go through all this? Jesus doesn't whine and complain. How come I have to do this? He doesn't, doesn't do any of that. But Christians today, we, we got that part. There's no wondering, there's no doubt, there's no uncertainty. So if you want to have prayer in spiritual warfare, your prayer needs to have no begging, complaining, wondering, doubt, or uncertainty. And as we, I think I said this, all three of those prayers we looked at were pretty short. You didn't need to be, be too long on those particular things because they were there to request something of God. Some was for deliverance. The other two were for uh, boldness or for uh, God to show up. Now, here's the other one. In all these prayers, there are declarations of victory. They declared victory in these prayers. 
Elijah declared victory in his prayer before the victory had occurred. Paul declared victory before the victory had occurred. Jesus declared victory before the victory had occurred. Hezekiah declared victory before the victory had occurred. And the disciples, they claimed victory before the victory had occurred too. They all declared declarations of victory. Affirmations of who God is. Boy, I tell you, sometimes you listen to Christians praying and they have affirmations as to who they are. But not affirmations as to who God is. And confirmations of their role as His servants. We aren't here to give God orders. I take orders. I understand what His will is from the Word and I go out and perform it. So each one of these prayers, they confirm their role as His servants. They declared that before everybody. I am your servant. I just do what you say to do. I speak what you say to speak. Paul was very clear. I am a servant of the Most High God. So they are, in all these prayers, there are declarations of victory, affirmations of who God is, and confirmations of their role as His servants. And they're preceded. Every single one of these was preceded by bold actions, confident in faith. They were confident. Even Paul, before they got on the boat, I perceive that this voyage will end. He went over what the, the voyage was going to end in. That's a bold statement, but that's what he had in his spirit. Each one of these people, there were some actions of boldness before they ever got in. Just taking it from that, if you do nothing but be timid in spiritual warfare and then expect that you're going to have a prayer that's going to take you and catapult you in the area of boldness, uh, you would be wrong. You need to act in that boldness ahead of time. You need to be bold. Elijah was bold before he came to this spot. Now, eventually he became timid. He got scared. But up till now, he's been bold. He's been doing that. The disciples have been bold. And are asking to continue to be bold. So there's a boldness that we need to have when we encounter spiritual warfare. And certainly we can have because we have the armor on. And we can engage the enemy. Now, I couldn't fit any of these things in your outline. I had to take them out. But in summary, it goes this way. When we have prayer in spiritual warfare, our prayers... They can acknowledge situations, but they don't elaborate. Spiritual warfare prayers acknowledge situations, but don't elaborate. You can acknowledge what you're going through. The disciples, they acknowledge what they were going through. They've made threats at us. Paul acknowledged what he's going through. We got a storm that's trying to take this, this boat down. Jesus acknowledged what he was going through. Hezekiah acknowledges what he's going through. He puts the letter out there before God. He acknowledges what he's going through. There is no problem with acknowledging what you're going through, but don't elaborate on it. Oh, God, it's just been so hard. Oh, I've just been struggling so much. You don't need to acknowledge all that or elaborate all that. You can acknowledge what you're going through. God, I'm facing this. I'm feeling this. This is going on. You can acknowledge those things. That's fine, but don't elaborate. First off, God already knows what you're going through. He knows it better than you do. Don't feel like you have to conceal the situation. Don't feel like you have to ignore the situation in prayer. Because all these people acknowledge their situations in their prayer that was involved in spiritual warfare. When I get involved in spiritual warfare, I can make a prayer that still acknowledges what I am going through. But don't elaborate on it. Because in each of these cases, no one elaborated. They just acknowledged. Generally, when we start elaborating is when our prayers get longer. Here's the second thing. They, they declared God's greatness, not doubts. When I go to prayer and spiritual warfare, I can acknowledge God's greatness. The devil wants you to acknowledge your doubts. He wants you to declare your doubts right out. Well, God, I just don't know if you can do this one. I just don't know if I'm at a place where you can pull this thing off. 
I just don't know if I've done all the things I need to do for you to get this thing done. No, you declare God's greatness, not the doubts. Put them, them doubts out. Brother Hagin used to teach us, he said, you can have faith in your heart and doubt in your head. See, sometimes the devil gets us to, to thinking we have to get the doubt out of everything. But remember Jesus when he was teaching, he who believes in his heart. That's where Brother Hagin got that from the teaching that Jesus had. You can have doubts in your head with faith in your heart. That's where you need to be. So, declare God's greatness, not doubts. Third, reaffirm willful submission. Reaffirm willful submission. Each one of these guys declared their submission to God. And it was willful. I am your servant. We are your servants. Not my will, but your will be done. Each of these people reaffirms willful submission, not compelled resignation. A lot of times Christians go to prayer and all the, their prayer is filled with compelled resignation. Well, God, if I have to die from this thing, then so be it. I don't want to. There's no willful submission to that. I just feel compelled. Well, I just have to be willing to, to die from this thing if that's what's going to go on. Paul didn't get up there and say, well, if you want us to die in this shipwreck, that's fine. I'll just go. No. We've we got to get rid of the, the uh, compelled resignation to the situations that we're in. Your prayer should not contain compelled resignation to the situation that you're in. Well, I guess we'll just have to be this way. Well, God, if you can just deliver me from half of the pain, I can bear the rest of it. We have some compelled resignation. Well, I'll just, I'll just, I can see I have to take on some of this, so I'll just acknowledge that I'll take on half of it. No, you reaffirm willful submission to the will of God, to the Word of God, to the promises of God, but not compelled resignation. Too many Christians in their prayers, they have compelled resignation. I just feel like it has to be this way. And the devil may sell it to them any way that he can, but he may sell it to you in the fact that, well, you made mistakes. Hezekiah made mistakes. You made mistakes. And you just got to live with it. Oh, I guess so. See, that's resigned. I just resigned to this, this thing. Well, I, just, I guess it has to just be this way. Compelled resignation. I'll just accept that it has to be this way and, and go with no. Reaffirm willful submission to God. Not compelled resignation. Here's the last one. Request kingdom's needs, not selfish ones. What If you are involved in spiritual warfare, again, we're talking about spiritual warfare. We're not talking about difficult times. We'll get to difficult times next time. But in spiritual warfare, this is when you are encountering spiritual forces. Let me go back to the, uh, the thing I gave you here in the beginning. Just read this again. Spiritual warfare would be distinguished by our going up against spiritual forces, throwing thoughts, people, or natural things at us to keep us bound, defeated, distracted, or prevented from our God-given kingdom purpose. That is spiritual warfare. If it does not involve our God-given kingdom purpose, purpose for which each of us has. If it does not involve our God-given kingdom purpose, it is not spiritual warfare. It may be a difficult time, but it's not spiritual warfare. What gets the attention of the enemy is people who are doing kingdom business. Remember the words that the demon speaks to the seven sons of Sceva. I don't even know who you are. <laughs> a whole lot of Christians living a life. The devil doesn't even know who you are. But they blame him for all the things that are going on. There was a Flip Wilson who came up with that line, the devil made me do it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember the, he used to sit around the family and watch that show. It was, it was funny. The devil made me do it. Whatever happened, the devil, no, it was your flesh, actually, but it was more funny the way he'd, 
the way he did it. When I'm involved in a spiritual battle, what have my prayers sounded like? How many of these four aspects can I say are involved in what I pray? We've got to make sure that these things are there. You don't need, in this aspect, you don't need long prayers. We will be taking a look at some situations where longer prayers are needed. But in these aspects, this was not what was needed in these particular times. We'll look at some of the reasons why we might have some, some longer prayers and some things going on uh, in that way. But not in these situations. They were short prayers. They listed the things that were out there. They acknowledged the situation. They declared God's greatness. They reaffirmed willful submission to God. And they request kingdom needs. Because they realized they were involved in spiritual warfare. You're involved in spiritual warfare. Something about the kingdom is being attacked. Paul's looking, when he's laying out the, the armor... He's looking at the Roman armor. That was not, the Roman armor was not provided to prevent you from being robbed. That's not why they were given armor. They were given armor to be part of an army to go about and do kingdom business. To fight kingdom wars. When they went out and fought kingdom wars, they either were expanding the kingdom or defending the kingdom. As an army, that's what they did. They either expanded the kingdom or they defended the kingdom. That was in a natural sense. And you can see a lot of implications to that for the spiritual army as well. But sometimes we get the idea that our spiritual armor is there to keep us from being robbed. Keep us from being stolen from. Now I guarantee you that if anybody came up and tried to steal something from a Roman soldier who was equipped, that they would use the armor against that thief. Guarantee you that they would. But that's not the purpose of it. No, it's not the purpose. They could use it. Some robber came up in the kingdom. They said, I'm going to take this thing that this soldier has over here. That soldier could pull out his sword and uh, make short work of that person. And they were skilled. They knew how to use these things and they could do that. And Rome would say, that's fine. That's all right. They come up, try and rob you. You can use that stuff against them. But that's not why they gave it to them. The reason that they have it is to fight things for the kingdom. Now, if you ever have a soldier and he was going out and he's fighting all his individual battles and not joining the army when they were going out to war, well, he wouldn't be a soldier for very long. He'd be probably imprisoned for uh, dereliction of duty. That's how they would, have, they would have handled it. But that's why you're given spiritual armor, is to fight spiritual warfare, spiritual battles, things that are going on in this, this nature. So as we in, encounter spiritual warfare, what kind of prayers, what kind of things are in your prayers? And again, we're going to take a look at some, some situations. I've got some, still some things to share with you on that to uh, help us to understand. Because not all prayers in spiritual warfare are short. But still a lot of them can be. Well, Father, we thank you for your word that you help us to understand how to impl implement prayer in spiritual warfare. And it's an important part of our, of our time. The things that we need to do. We thank you for these examples with the disciples, with Hezekiah, with Elijah, with Jesus and Paul. And the warfare that was coming against them to keep them from the kingdom purpose that was before them. In the same way that you help us in the kingdom purpose that we have. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.